Take your Bibles, turn with me this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You may remember the story back in April of 2003 when a hiker by the name of Aaron Ralston went mountain climbing in the Canyonlands National Park in Utah. He made a couple of crucial mistakes. First of all, he traveled alone. And secondly, he forgot to tell anybody about his trip. Unfortunately, Ralston fell into a crevice. He dislodged a 800-pound boulder in the process, and the slab pinned him against a canyon wall. After five days trying to lift or break the boulder, he came to a rather agonizing decision. He was going to have to cut off the lower part of his useless right arm or die. Now this may make you squirm a little bit. It did me when I read it. Ralston managed to snap the bones of his arm against the rock and then he used the dull blade of a multi-use tool to cut through the tissue around his broken arm. He used pliers to sever the tendons and finally he extricated himself and was able to escape. I think we all understand that only in the most dire of circumstances does one make the choice to remove a limb or some other member of their body. That applies tonight because the Corinthian Christians seem to not have seen it that way. In a spiritual sense, they are like a leg that decides it's going to cut off the remainder of the body. They effectively cut off every member of the body except those who have a certain kind of spiritual gift or ministry. The Corinthians do not esteem all the spiritual gifts the same. They hold some on a certain level and look down on the rest. The Corinthian believers seem to attach particular importance to the more demonstrative of the spiritual gifts, which led to a distortion of which gifts were the most important, which in turn led to divisiveness. For example, those who had the gift of tongues were thought to be more spiritual than those who did not. As a result, those who did not possess those specific special gifts concluded that they had nothing to contribute to the church body. Others who did possess those highly regarded gifts, felt rather smugly independent of the rest of the church body. Now, Paul has much to say about this issue. In fact, he uses the remainder of this chapter to make the comparison between the church, the body of Christ, to the physical body and showing us that every single gift and every single saint is vitally important to the body. Now, this is not a new comparison, a new analogy. In fact, Paul first used that comparison of the human body to the body of Christ in this letter in chapter 10, in verses 16 and 17, where he was discussing the Lord's Supper. He said there, We who are many are one body, for we partake of one bread. And now he picks up, with that analogy again between the human body and the body of Christ in conjunction with his 
explanation of the spiritual gifts. Now, I want you to notice three things with me tonight as we look at this. First of all, we must claim our unity. <clears throat> it says in verse number 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all are the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. Many members, but one body. Just as the human body is made up of many parts, so the church is made up of many people with different gifts. In the human body, each part has a specific function that is necessary to the body as a whole. Some of those parts are not seen, but that doesn't mean that they're not vitally important. The parts are different for a purpose, but in their difference, they work together. And then he says in verse 13, they are baptized into one body. For by one spirit, we were all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So what kind of baptism is he talking about here? That's the one question that we have to consider. Is he referring to a literal water baptism or is he referring to the baptism of the spirit? The verse seems to refer to the, to the work of Christ by which each believer is identified with him. That is, baptism of the Spirit, rather than water baptism. Individuals become part of the body of Christ, which is the church, through immersion. That's what the word baptizo means, being immersed in the Spirit. That this is the baptism that Paul is referring to helps us to understand also that he believes that this is common to all believers. And it is implied in the fact that Paul does not exhort them to be baptized in the Spirit as it would be some kind of second blessing. But he says rather that they have been baptized, aorist tense, which means past event, lasting results. Some people hold... <clears throat> through a misunderstanding of what the universal church constitutes, that because they are believers and are a part of the universal church, they do not need involvement in a local church. I like what Brother Dr. David Dykes of Texas says. He says, there are some people whose names are on the church roll who are really not a part of the body of Christ. They're like my watch. The watch is an attachment to my body, but it is an artificial attachment. It is something that can be taken off and put back on. My shoe is not a part of my body. It is an attachment to my body. It can be taken off and put back on. There are some people who have a superficial attachment to the church. That's why they never show up. They might bloom at Easter like a lily, and that's why they might come at various times but because their heart is not in the church, they are not serving the Lord through the church. They are not giving regularly to the church, they, but somehow they still think they're part of the body. The idea that we can stay close to God without involvement in a church is a myth. We have all heard people say, I, I feel as close to God on the lake as I do in the church, and that can be true. 
God is certainly evident in his creation. But it also could be true that a person who says that may feel as close to God on the lake as they do in church because their relationship is shallow. And they are not any closer to God in the church than they are at the lake. However, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Much of what it means to be a believer requires us to interact with other believers. In our day, when people get their feelings hurt for some reason, they have a tendency to just leave the church. And that is the equivalent to a body cutting off some part of its own self because of a supposed offense. Either one of those will produce a permanent disfigurement. So we have to claim our unity, and secondly, we have to celebrate our diversity. Paul argues that just as a body is made up of a variety of different parts that do different things but serve a common purpose, so the body of Christ is made up of individuals with different gifts that all contribute to that one body. There are two things that Paul feels that are necessary to be dealt with. And first of all, is dealing with a feeling of inferiority beginning in verse 14. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if there were all one member, where would the body be? Because some spiritual gifts were being set apart as being the mark of true spirituality by some of the Corinthians, those who did not have that gift, those demonstrative gifts, like prophecy and speaking in tongues, they felt like they really didn't have any way to contribute to the church. So Paul imagines one part of the body talking to other parts of the body, and here the foot and the ear are comparing themselves to the hand and the eye. And in their own estimation, they are of less value. If one... compares the spiritual gifts to the body of Christ with the various parts of the human body to the whole, it is absurd to think that all the gifts and members should be the same, that we should all have the same spiritual gift. According to verse 18, since it is God who chooses the gift one receives, it is not only foolish, but disobedient to covet someone else's spiritual gift. The gifts are not given according to a whim, or are they changed according to people's preferences? Having dealt with inferiority, he turns to the other side of the coin in verse 20 in feelings of superiority. Verse 20 says, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. 
No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow great, greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which, it, which lacks it. So verse number 20 is a reinstatement of the other side of verse number 12. Now Paul is speaking to those who, because they possess certain spiritual gifts, they believe they are somehow more important or more spiritual than those who do not possess those specific spiritual gifts. Paul again imagines one part of the human body talking to the others. Here the eye and the and the head are comparing themselves to the hand and the feet. And in their own estimation, they are greater value than the others. Of course, the problem that's being addressed here is superiority. And some of the, the Corinthians are looking down on or devaluing the spiritual gifts of others. So Christians have a problem. They need to avoid two common errors concerning spiritual gifts being too proud of their gift or uh, thinking that they have no gift or no service to offer to the body of believers. Verse number 24 translates the word composes. Composes is a word used to describe the, either the mixing of two elements or the mixing of two colors to create a third. The whole point is that once they're mixed, they cannot be unmixed. It seems humorous to say those parts which are unpresentable must be made presentable. In life, sometimes the parts that are least important receive the most attention and effort. We paint our toenails and place rings on our fingers and our ears. We put jewelry on our fingers. But the truth is we can live without our ears and toes and fingers. Although it wouldn't be very much fun. And although your kidneys and your liver may be unpresentable, they are quite necessary. We must celebrate our diversity. And third and finally, we must concentrate on our harmony. Verse 25, that there be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now, Paul has already raised the issue of harmony in chapter 1 and verse 10 when he said, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. That's a great ideal. But such harmony can only exist when all the members, no matter what their spiritual gifts are, use their gift, they appreciate each other's gifts, and they care for each other equally. Verse 26 points out... That as with physical human body, when one part of the body suffers, it causes every part to suffer. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, it is not only your thumb that feels the pain. 
Verse 27 says there is a design to the body. Now that now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The word you is a plural you. It would be the equivalent of our southern phrase you all. It is you all of you. You all of you are the body of Christ. It refers to all believers across the world and it necessitates some understanding of the term the universal church. The universal church is that organism of professing believers who make up the body of Christ through the baptism by the Holy Spirit is not limited to local congregational or denominational affiliation. I think it highly unlikely, I'm not going to say impossible, highly unlikely that you're a member of the church universal if you're not a member of a local congregation. Everyone living or dead who has ever put their faith in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost till now is a member of this church, this body, Christ's body of which he is the head. There is a distinction between the members in the universal church and the local church. The universal church, you can only be in the universal church if you are honestly and truly a believer. But the local church can have members who say they are believers but are really not. It's possible to be a member of a local church and not be a member of the body of Christ, and that's a little bit alarming. In verses 28 through 30, we look at the differences in the body. This is the second time in chapter 12 that he has dealt with spiritual gifts. There are four lists. I gave them to you last time. Uh, three lists, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians 4.11. Here in verse 28 is a little bit different than what he has given us before. It says that God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that miracles and then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. So in verse 28, Paul again lists some of the spiritual gifts, but since there are several that he has already talked about, I'm just going to take the time to look at the four that he has not already talked about, the first of which is apostles. The word apostle literally means sent one in its most technical sense, and by that I mean with a capital A. It applies only to the 12 original disciples, including Matthias, who replaced Judas after his death. The qualifications for being an apostle were that they were chosen directly by Jesus and had witnessed the risen Christ. The apostle Paul would have been the last to meet those qualifications, which would preclude anyone who would claim that title today. The term apostle little a was used to describe several other notable men in the New Testament, such as Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, James, and others. In a strict understanding of the word, we no longer have apostles, but we have sent out ones. We have messengers, individuals sent out by the church. We call them 
missionaries. There are teachers. Teachers are simply those who take the word of God and explain it in an understandable way. Teaching involves preparation, presentation, and application. There's a spiritual gift of helps, sometimes called service. It literally means to lay hold on something. It has the connotation of taking a burden off of someone else and placing it on yourself. This would describe someone who serves primarily behind the scenes. This person would be a burden bearer. But this would not have been a gift considered a very valuable or desirable gift by the Corinthians. And then there is the gift of administration, and it's just what it sounds like. It means to provide leadership and guidance, to organize the resources of the church to accomplish its goal. That does not have to be in an official capacity, only someone using their gifts. One thing that we have to look at, I suppose, is how significant then are the demonstrative gifts. Verse 29 and 30. And we certainly will be coming back to talk about the demonstrative gifts, especially speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy uh, in chapter 14, which gives the guidelines for how they are to be used in the church, proper worship. Here it says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And those are rhetorical questions, obviously, and they're rhetorical questions that demand the answer no. Great damage has been done to the cause of Christ and to his church And oddly enough, it is the same problem that the church in Corinth was experiencing then and is still being experienced in the church today. And that is the promoting of the gift of tongues as evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence or of being saved. This has caused many people to seek the gift of tongues or to fake the gift of tongues, often only to assure themselves or others that they are really filled with the Spirit. And finally, there is in verse 31 a development in the body. It says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. As I understand that verse, he is not instructing individual Christians to seek after better gifts, but rather he is admonishing the whole church to desire those gifts that are more profitable for the church. Now I want to just briefly say a little bit about application. How do we find out what God has called us to do? I just want to give some very simple steps about how to do that. It's not a guide for Finding out what your spiritual gift is by a bunch of questions. This is just a very simple uh, five-step thing that you can look at. Number one, pray. Pray and ask God to show you where he wants you to serve. 
And then be willing to do whatever he calls you to do. Number one, pray. Number two, observe. What is it that you have a heart for? What are your passions? Why do we assume that God is going to call us to do something that we don't want to do? Do you, have a, do you feel strongly that the church needs to do something in a, in a particular direction? Is there a ministry or a group of people, a project that you feel strongly about? Those things that you have a passion for are probably the place that God wants you to serve. Number three, opportunities. What opportunities have you been given? You don't have to say yes, and you probably shouldn't say yes to every opportunity. You need to decide what is the most important. However, God does open doors to show us where he wants us to serve. So we need to watch for those opportunities. Number four, we need to serve. We cannot know what it is that God has called us to do unless we take a step out of our comfort zone and try something new. If you think there is some way that you might be able to serve, then volunteer and give it a shot. You'll never know till you try. And then number five, listen. Sometimes other people see what God has called us to do better than we do ourselves. We can ask our friends and our family for feedback, and you will discover that your friends see your spiritual gifts and abilities probably more clearly than you do. Sometimes the things that we think are no big deal are recognized by others as being very significant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for gifting us and empowering us. You've given each of us a spiritual gift, at least one, whereby we may serve you. It may not be a gift out in front, it may be a a gift of serving behind the scenes. That really doesn't matter as long as we're doing that, which you've called us to do, using the gifts that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to find our place in the local body and be willing to serve. Thank you for each one who's here tonight and their faithfulness. It's not a very encouraging night to be out. It's cold and the weather is threatening and Lord, I pray you just bless them for their faithfulness tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd guide and direct in our time of invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.